0: Hello and welcome to Desert Isolation Discs. My guest today is a giant of modern journalism, and for many has defined what writing about music should be. Using witty and personal prose, he has covered every significant rock music movement over the last three decades from their epicentre, from Riot Girl to Grunge, for titles including Enemy, Melody Maker and The Guardian. He was there at the creation of Alan McGee's creation, and his career has been defined by his close relationship with Kurt Cobain whom he introduced to Courtney Love. Born in the UK, named Gerry Thackeray in 1961, he's known by pen names, including the legend, and most famously, Everett True. He speaks to me down the line from Brisbane, where he runs online music magazine Collapse Board. Jerry, hello. Hi, uh, how
1: are you doing?
0: Uh, I'm great, thank you. Absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, now, uh, the concepts uh, of the podcast, as I'm sure you well know, is that uh, I've catapulted you into the desert, into isolation, and you've got to pick eight tunes that you uh, will have to live with. So quite a big task for someone who's had uh, such a close... You know, your life is defined by music.
1: Yeah, well, um, uh, considering this list, there are a couple of songs that immediately suggested themselves to me. Uh, Also, I have a tendency to take kind of lists like this a bit too literally sometimes. So if I'm not careful, I'll sit there for years, to figure out how I could narrow down, like, 100,000 songs into, you know, a list of eight. So initially, when I started doing this list, my idea was just to ask my wife what her favourite song was from each of these artists, but she saw through that idea, kind of, second song (laughs) in. There there are so many notable omissions from this list, I could, you and me could talk about the notable omissions for the next few days, and we still wouldn't have touched on all of them.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and I think that's time for an- another podcast of a three day list of omissions, then, uh, Jerry. But, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe not. Uh, so, what's the first uh, pick?
1: Okay, so I've got Nina Simone, trouble in mind. Um, Nina. um I saw her I saw her play live a couple of times um she's always been my I don't have favorites you know you don't have favorites it's not a competition you take each song as it comes um but having said that Nina Simone's always been my favorite um I have probably I don't really know about 50 or 60 vinyl albums of her back in the UK um 20 or 30 CDs uh and I saw her live a few times, not as many as I would have liked to have done. One occasion that particularly stood out was in Minneapolis um, in about ninety. 95- before, probably when myself and my friend were the only um white people in the entire audience which was um quite a turnaround for me um to be in the minority like that and uh it was mostly notable for the fact that she was on stage for about 40 minutes and 30 of those minutes was the audience singing along Neither was able to kind of mix emotions up um and kind of um just confuse people just by being there you know she was political when people didn't want her to be political she was absolutely part of the civil rights movement Mississippi God is such an incredible um, protest song I I play that one to my students um, pretty much every single semester because you know it's Nina Um, I play several other songs of hers as well um, but anyway, this particular song, "Trouble in Mind," um, it was kind of early on in my love for um, Nina. Kind of, I came to her pretty much the same way a lot of people did in the UK in the um, late '80s. I heard um, her version of "My Baby Just Cares for Me," um, loved it. Got it on 10-inch from Rough Trade on Charlie Records. Um, don't mention Charlie in the presence of um, Nina. Um, famous story, she wants to chase the um, owner of ne- uh, Charlie Records around his office with a knife, demanding that she pay him the money owed. Um, anyway, I, I bought that record. Um, and and this um, version of Trouble in Mind that I really love is on a, uh, one of those cheaper... Um, Albums that used to come out. I can't remember exactly what they were. Now, Music for Pleasure. I think a golden hour of Nina Simone, and um, it was uh, her playing Trouble in Mind Alive Just a gorgeous piano refrain. What you know when she's just going out to entertain people. There's no kind of agenda. Just her enjoying herself. Um, and I think it was probably one of the first songs I I played Charlotte, um, who's to become my wife, um, when we first knew each other. Um, uh, you know, and it's one we bonded on, and it's it's just. It's just a song that makes me feel good.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's one that I love as well, so let's hear it. Some lonesome railroad line. Let the two nineteen train ease my troubled mind. Nina Simone there. Uh, now, Jerry your record collection is actually in storage in the UK, I believe. Uh, and you've moved to Australia. Uh, did you do that on a bit
1: of a whim? No, no, we didn't move to Australia on a whim. We, we went to, you can't really move to Australia on a whim. Um, you don't just st- step on a random plane and you somehow find yourself in Australia. No, we, we knew we were going to move to Australia, but we thought we were going to Melbourne, but we stopped off in the north um, on, on the east coast um, on the way because it's winter and it was a beautiful day when we stepped off the plane, so we stayed in Brisbane.
0: And can you tell us about your life there? I mentioned Collapse Board and also your teaching.
1: Yeah, I'm a PhD student. Uh, I've been a PhD student for too long. Um, I'm studying the effects of online environments on music criticism. You know, what is the role of the music critic when everybody has access to music the way they they do themselves Mm -hmm. and, you know, everybody's like, you don't need criticism anymore because, you know, you can just go and listen to it. Um, which is totally missing the point of any kind of arts criticism, because that was never the point of it, not really aside from that we 've got three kids who are nine, five, and three who are wonderful and infuriating the way kids are um, they kind of take over your life you kind of you don 't play that much music when you 've got three young kids because you just don't need the competition as far as noise is concerned Um, quite often I will go to bed a few hours after everybody else because I'll be listening to music on my headphones but that's not that good because it means I don't fit in with everybody else's day Um, I don't go out to shows anymore because I'm 53 and I've got three kids and I just get tired to be honest and I don't really like going to shows as a I've never liked going to shows as a Consumer, I've always wanted to be a participant. So, you know, I did that early on without realising by always dancing to bands down in front of shows. Then I carried on by being a critic and kind of giving reviews um, and doing my fanzine, obviously. And then, you know, I was a performer myself, I DJed. But now I'm in Brisbane, I kind of, beyond Collapse Board, I don't really do any of that. Yes,
0: absolutely. I can completely relate to that. I think it, it's good to feel an active part of something. Um, what's your second choice
1: so the second choice is Dex's Midnight Runners Um, listen to this now again this is a song that's special to me and my wife absolutely Um, Dex is uh, famously I believe um, I once um, threatened to punch another journalist because he told me how much he loved the Dexes not how much (laughs) he hated, how much he loved them we were talking about Dexes and we were Exchanging our favourite songs and he was saying I love this and I was saying, I love this and he was saying I love this, saying, I love this and, I, and then he said I love this and I said you have no fucking right to tell me that so I tried to punch him with Dexies it's kind of more devotional there aren't that many bands I'll allow myself this with um, most bands you know I'm a critic to a degree most bands somewhere down the line I will not allowing myself to become that devotional to a band. But there are some bands I am. Um, Nina Simone would be a good example. Um, Dex is a great example. It's When I say devotional, it's kind of like, I guess, maybe it's what people get out of following a football club or something. I don't know. I don't experience that kind of sports urge. Um, or, or going to church or something. Um, the um I feel a very strong connection with their music, which has become even stronger since I actually met Kevin, which was quite a few years ago now when he was living in Brighton and I was um, because I realized that he's you know, uh, I mean, obviously, he's a very different person to me, but he's very insecure in his own way. He's very kind of, you know, and, and that's probably something that I can very much relate to within his music. Listen to this is an amazing song because it's a love song. It's a very straightforward love song. He sings I Love You over and over again. And it's an amazing song to listen to if you believed in Dex's as much as I did at one point and still do. Um, because on their first album, he's got um, uh, a song about. Uh, uh, how, how basically I'm not going to give myself up for love, you know, and believe in all the bullshit and all the lies like all the others. Um, you know, he has this big diatribe against um, love, and he has this line compromises the devil talking. And then um, on this song, he starts off, I was thinking of a compromise when I saw the beauty in your eyes. He's, he's absolutely referring to the same thing. You know, I can understand why people will be into things like. Dylan or Van Morrison or, or, or you know whatever their classic rock I mean for me that's Dex's I was thinking.
0: was uh Dex's Midnight Runners uh, thank you for that Jerry now I, I mentioned at the top there that uh, in many ways your career has been defined by your relationship with Nirvana uh and obviously you, you were close friends with both uh, Kurt and and Courtney Love how do you sort of have having, having written a lot about it to, to say the least uh, since uh, that time how do you separate your real life memories of uh, being with Kurt and the kind of the, the myth and folklore that's emerged around him and, the, you know, the the, fa- the fan obsession that's obviously been uh, exaggerated as well in the internet era?
1: I'm not sure I can. I, I, I haven't um, got that good a memory, to be honest. Um, I can't remember most anything um, from... The 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the noughties, the 10s. I've just just never had a very good memory. Maybe that's why I write about stuff I don't know. The only artist since... Not that I've listened to that many, to be fair, but the only artist since Kurt's death that I've actually heard get Kurt um, was Lord on that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame appearance. I thought that was astonishing. She absolutely... You know, she was so nervous. She was trembling from head to toe. I know that's part of her shtick. I'm aware of that. But even so, she was absolutely—you know—it was herself. It was she. She was so vulnerable, and it was that vulnerability at the heart of Nirvana's music that made them so special. Um, because otherwise, you know, they wrote great tunes, they had great, you know, riffs and they had all of that, they had a great voice, but I mean there's loads of bands that have that, but they had that vulnerability that so many hard rock or whatever or pop bands don't have, you know, they're not willing to put, they, they, it's not about willingness, it's just they had it um, so, yeah so that law performance was something quite magical to me when I saw it um, I, yeah, I was like, wow, you know Thank
0: you. And how would, you, uh, character, how would you describe your relationship uh, with Kurt? Clearly, you know, both, you were know, you're, you're a journalist,
1: but also his friend. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, how do you classify a friend? I, I have no idea how you do that. I don't know. Other people have told me that he was my friend and I was his friend. I mean, I guess that Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, actually, which I did watch because a couple of people... Because I like the idea they chose female vocalists. Um, that was the first time I've really kind of been like, oh yeah, those guys, yeah, they were, yeah, I miss those guys, I miss Chris, I miss Dave, um, I miss, you know, the guys around them that you wouldn't have heard of, um, yeah, it's a shame I'm not in contact with them, you know, why am I, why do I have this thing in my life where I just don't stay in contact with anybody that I used to know?
0: Well, we're glad that you're in contact with us. Now, your next track is, uh, Beyonce's Crazy in Love, isn't it?
1: You know, when I first mentioned a few years back that this was pretty much my favourite song of the last ten years, people on Facebook actually thought I was taking a piss. They thought, you know, they were like... And and some people, like, instantly unfriended me. And I was like, what? But this is, like, one of the best songs of the last ten years. I mean, so obviously it's got so much energy. It's got more energy. It's louder than pretty much any rock track I can think of. Um... The reason I like it is one word, euphoria. Euphoria. It's, it's euphoric. It's, it's absolutely... It's, it's just so full-on and so, and so wonderful. And so I can still remember seeing it on Top of the Pops in England and Beyonce st- walking out, stepping down those steps. I've only heard it a couple of thousand times, so you know I could probably stand to hear it a couple of thousand more times.
0: and Jay-Z with Crazy in Love there, Jerry, excellent stuff uh, t- uh, tell us about how the music press has developed during your time writing about music, uh, you set up Keller's Talk, an absolutely fantastic magazine uh, starting out at issue 12 with the issue of count- with the mission of counting down to zero and the target of either having changed the British music press or having to give up What's your attitude to how you did that project?
1: It just seemed a sensible thing to do. We, I mean, at any given point, we were about thirty thousand pounds in debt on that magazine, and I didn't even realise that until after the magazine stopped and we just about broke even. We never got paid. You know, uh, we were doing it as a kind of full time job for two years. Um, It was me, Steve, and Andrew Clare, our designer. I mean, there's tons of other people, obviously, but we were the main three who were kind of putting the magazine to bed each couple of months, Um, and. That thing about counting down, well, it's partly because we we felt that people didn't and still don't take music criticism seriously enough. I mean, music criticism at its height can easily be the equal or or, or even more um, uh, life-affirming or whatever than the music it criticises. It was, um, I'd just come back from Australia, been in Australia for a year. I was going to start up a satirical magazine um, via a couple of ex-loaded people. Um, it kind of fell through for one reason or another. But then I was still talking about doing a magazine and Steve kind of came in. We just wanted to put out as good a magazine as we could. The fact that Steve Gullick was doing most of the photography for it really made me raise my game because I was just like, oh shit, I'm going to have to write something as good as these photographs? How the hell am I going to do that? And because I was writing it for myself and because I really wanted to take pride in what I was doing, I was really pushing at the boundaries of what I thought I could and couldn't do um, in my writing. You know, we deliberately started off with that Mogwai feature in the first issue, which was about 9,000 words long and written by about six different people. I don't know if anybody really caught on to that. Um, And, you know, we had that ridiculous Songs Are Higher one where I didn't even meet the fella. I interviewed Steve Gullick, who went out to Chicago and I interviewed Steve about experiences. I wrote that in something like three hours, um, the whole thing from begin to end. Um, we had the Nick Cave interview where um, Nick was just so nice, uh, so sweet and accommodating, and it was quite alarming. I think it might have been the first time I met him, although um, Nick actually ended up being one of the very few people who used to come along to see me play live in Brighton because he knew one of my bandmates. I was proud of it. Um, I wish it, I, I was still doing something like that. I wish I'd got paid for something doing something like that. Um, I still think there should be an anthology of it. Um, but, Jesus, the amount of money it would cost to put that out, knowing what Steve Gullick's kind of production values are, um, it's just, you know, it's just scary.
0: <laughs> well, I'd buy it. So what's your next as isolation disc?
1: Yeah, Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers' Morning of Our Lives. Um, this was... I decided that when our first son was born, Isaac, who was born in the UK in um, 2005, um, when he was born, I was, I'd just bought a, a four-track tape recorder a few weeks before a month before, and I decided I was going to record a song every day for the whole time he was growing up. Now, of course, that never happened, but I did actually manage it for about three months. I um, for- made up a song every day, recorded it... Um, you know, um, just using the bear I can't really play guitar or anything um, and the second song not the first song because I was a little bit tired after he was born but the second song I did was Morning of Our Lives with my friend Chris Anderson um, Jonathan I, yeah you know I, the, the, the song I always show my students is lesb- I was dancing in the lesbian bar for the dance break I remember I saw, I saw him in Seattle in a tiny pub no one seemed to appreciate him there um, because he lived quite close by I think and he did a like whole dance in front of us for like 10 minutes it was just the best thing ever he was meant to be the first person ever to dance to um the ramones i don't know if that's true or not but i like to think it is he was also a very big velvet underground very early velvet underground Um, but um jonathan richmond uh, i mean you know a, a dude you know i mean you could pick about 100 songs of his and still not tire of any of them
0: then there's no need To think that other people can do things better than you can do them Cause you got the same power in you I got faith in you Sometimes you don't have it in yourself But I got faith in you And our time is right now Now we can do anything we really want to Our time is now here in the morning of our lives. The inimitable Jonathan Richmond and the modern lovers there. Now, Jerry, you're an Essex boy by birth, aren't you? Uh, what were you like as a kid?
1: Uh, as a kid, I grew up in Chelmsford, Essex. Back, I can remember when they built the um, dual carriageway through the middle of it, which just absolutely killed it as a kind of town. Um, you know, before. I guess. I don't know. I mean, I was only about 9 or 10 when that happened, but I can still sort of remember it. I remember after I left home when I was 18 or 19 and I went back, every single time I went back, which was every few months, it seemed to be completely different. They seemed to have knocked down a load of stuff, put up a load of stuff. Now, I guess it's another satellite town of London. Um, When I was growing up, my dad was a councillor, and it had an identity of its own. Um, whatever that was, I don't know what it was, but it it had, you know, it was home to Essex County um, Cricket Club, um, which I used to be a cleaner for. Um, I I was a very shy um, kid. I kind of... I come from a family with six children. I was fourth. Um, I kept myself to myself. Um, I just uh, dropped out of the kind of conversation... Um, I got bullied a hell of a lot when I was at junior school. So when I came to senior school, I realised there were two main ways out of that. Uh, First was to make friends with the weirdest boy in the class, you know, who's also tough because no-one was going to mess with you then. And the other way was just to kind of get in more trouble than anybody else, which I did. Um, Not nasty trouble or anything. Um, I was just... um, Sorry? Sorry? What did you do? Oh, just, you know, just stupid stuff. Um, Moving desks around during lessons, you know, just, you know, whatever. Um, Setting people's doors on fire. Um, I realised I would either have to like punk or change my friends and I wasn't very good at making friends, so I kind of... (laughs) We formed a band, actually, before um, I even kind of... I think before I even bought a record. Um, We had a band which kind of did that whole thing of shoving guitar strings under... Uh, shoving drumsticks under guitar strings, um, playing piano, uh, decks of cards used as percussion, you know, just homegrown recordings. Actually, actually um, scarily similar to the kind of stuff Daniel Johnston um, was doing around that time. Daniel also learned to play piano um, from the same book. ..that I learned to play piano from, which was the Beatles songbook. I'd never even heard the Beatles, no. I just like their songs. And even to this day, I think that some Beatles songs are just completely wrong because they do not do them like me. Um, my versions are way better, <coughs> which I think is kind of one of the reasons I like hey, Daniel Johnson so much. What um, was your band hey. So, What was your band called? Oh, my first band was called Blowjob. Uh, I was pretty naive those days and my um, friends told me it's because I blew down a recorder. So I wrote the band's name all over my school exercise books, and I got given detention. <laughs> Very dubious. So what's your next choice? Yeah, so the next song... Now, the, the, uh, the, the next two songs, actually, I've chosen. I'm aware that I'm on a desert island. Okay. Okay. And I'm aware that if I've only got eight songs, and I don't know how it would just be eight songs and why there will not be a time limit on them, I'd better choose a couple of songs that go on for a little while. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to be... If I chose... You know, I wanted to choose a Renette song or a Ramon song, but they'd be over in a couple of minutes. And although it's fine playing that song for ten times in 20 minutes, you might as well play a Can song, and that's going to last 20 minutes anyway. You do right. Um, I'm not... You see, Can's interesting. I like Can just fine. I actually like the band's Can influence more in many ways. I mean, I love The Fall. Um, I never realised how big the Can's influence on The Fall was, probably not until the last ten years. Um, I never really heard Can, you know, I heard bits of them, um, but not really. It's kind of the same with Velvet Underground. It was... I heard bits of them, I like what I heard. So we can, I still don't really know their um, discography, I just know this one song You Do Right, which pretty much invented about 30 genres of music and um, about 3,000 bands. But yeah, You Do Right just like, it's the greatest rock and roll song ever written and it's also incredibly long.
0: Well, we may have to play you a truncated version, but here we go then, the greatest rock and roll song ever. Once I was blind, but now I can see. Now that you're in love with me, you made a believer out of me, babe. You made. can with you do right so jerry you told us about your punk days uh how about your family and your relationship with them
1: i was sort of the black sheep of the family sort of um i come from a pretty religious upbringing um uh, my eldest brother's a priest um all my other brothers served as altar boys i didn't because i was chief choir boy um and, you know, they, they, they've all, I think most of my family still got pretty, my mother was a chaplain, um, and I think most of my family still got pretty strong connections. I, um, when I went off to college, which I only did very briefly, I didn't really get on with college, um, I got to Goldsmiths College in London, uh, the maths department, not the art department, the maths department, um, and... I discovered that London had a lot more record shops than Charleston. Charleston actually had a lot of record shops at that point in time anyway, but London had a lot more. I spent my entire grant... This was back in the days when they gave you money for going to college. Um, I spent my entire grant in the first two weeks for that year and um, had to sell most of the records back again a month later. Um, I ended up squatting at the end of that year because I had no money to pay for accommodation... Um, much to my... I think my mum was pretty concerned. It was a pretty bad play area, to be honest. It's called Muggers Corner. Um, and um, we used to get raided um, fairly regularly. Some guy OD'd in the room next to mine. And then I kind of... Um, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I ended up being a really, really terrible screen printer for seven years. Um, and I hadn't, I didn't have any qualifications. I didn't have any clue... Um, I started writing about music uh, by accident, kind of. I was passionate enough. When uh, The Enemy started pinching my stuff... Um, I I don't know... <clears throat> my I mean, it's not that my parents weren't supportive. Um, but, uh, you know, my other... My brothers and sisters were kind of teachers and bank managers and accountants and stuff... Um, and I wasn't. Um, but then, all of a sudden, all my relatives and everybody, they, they knew who I was because of Nirvana. Um, and all of a sudden, when we'd have the family reunions, which I would reluctantly go to, my uncles would be referring to me as the famous one, and, you know, my cousins would be wanting to know me.
0: And what was writing for the enemy like at that point?
1: Yeah, at the enemy, while I was there in the 80s, I was a freelancer, as the legend. Um, a lot of the other freelancers didn't like me because, um, quite rightly, they thought I couldn't write. I couldn't write, they were quite right. Um, I really didn't know how to like, I, I, you know, I couldn't string sentences together most of the time. I made up words because I couldn't think of the right words. I used lots of um, exclamation marks because, you know, I, whatever. Um, I guess they kept me on because I was pretty good at, um, you know, uh, spotting bands, being enthusiastic. I had a unique voice of my own. Um, about the only um, people who really supported me there was Stephen Wells, because, mainly because I think Stephen felt, you know, I was from fanzines and so was he, um, and I performed on stage. Um, I, I guess other people did. You know, there's the Alan McGee the connection that didn't hurt, um, so that probably gave me a lot more licence than I realised at the time. Oh, anyway, so I ended up kind of having a very brief affair with this female writer. And um, she, she, one of the first things she said to me was, she said, why don't you ever talk in the office? And I was like, well, that's because... Um, yeah. Uh, why don't I ever talk? Well, that's because I kind of disagree with most of what people say. And she said, oh, she said, oh I just thought it's because you're boring. You know, I, I went in there because it was, no, it was a fucking enemy. It was cool to sit in there. Um, and I was a freelance screen printer for the last few years um, I was there. Um, so it was somewhere to go, you know. Um, but then when I got sacked by the enemy, you can't really sack a freelancer, but I got sacked. Um, I went over to the Melody Maker. And I can remember very early on um, going down a path. Why was I sacked? James Brown, who was a fellow fanzine writer, um, we used to actually write for each other's fanzines, me and James, and John Robb, um, the big three we used to call ourselves Attack so on Bazag, The Legend, and um, Rocks. Um, James Brown got brought in as featured editor, and one of the first things he did was come up to me and said, Jerry, you're lazy, you can't write, and you're useless. You're sacked. So I went to the Melody Maker where they'd like journalists like that. And I typed up three sheets of paper saying everything that was wrong with the melody maker. And um, when I went in for my interview with Steve Sutherland, um, he started asking me questions. I just handed him this, these sheets of paper. He read them and he said, OK, start you're, you're in. Early on, maybe one of the first few weeks I was there, I went down the pub with the other guys, um, uh, the other writers. And I, remember, I was standing there just watching them all drinking and talking to each other and still feeling like I couldn't talk to anyone. And I went up to David Stubbs, who's the guy who did Mr. Agreeable. Um, very funny guy, very personable, but a little bit more sensitive, perhaps, than other. Um, and I said, David, you seem kind of, you know, OK. Um, how is it you can talk to these other people and kind of, you know, what's, what's the secret? And he said, well... He looked at me and was like, well, just Drink. I was like oh oh okay so that's what I did for the next however many years I just drank and then I very quickly realized that in the world of rock and roll where you know you get considerable cultural um cachet from being fucked up um the only trick is to get more fucked up than anybody else and that's really not that difficult
0: but a vital skill to have nonetheless um so tell us what's your next choice then Jerry?
1: It was an immediate choice. It wasn't, it's not one I regret or anything. This heat, health and efficiency, a um, band from Deptford, Camberwall area in the early 80s, Rough Trade Band, um, saw them one time supporting the Slits and uh, some skinheads, um, a big skinhead contingent at gigs back then, who were arguing with me and the bloke um, standing next to me. They were heckling this heat. We were telling them to shut up because we, what we liked him. We wanted to see him. And um, one of the skins produced a knife and just knifed the guy next to me. They were kind of called um, uh, prog punk uh, in retrospect. Uh, nobody would have said that at the time. Um, just ferocious. Just, just. There's so much going on in this song. It goes on forever. It's very repetitive. It's kind of a comfort song. Um, it's a comfort song. It's there because I know it would provide comfort.
0: Sunshine, Heat with health and efficiency there. So, Jerry, how do you approach your writing these days then?
1: Well, look, I mean, at this stage in my uh, in my life, I mean, I'm hoping this will change at some point. But there the are two main places I write for. One is Collapse Board, which is for myself, unpaid with a very small readership, um, and the other is for the Guardian. Um, and so, the Guardian. You know, I mean, you know yourself. You know, writing for broadsheets, um, you know, you have to follow a certain kind of set style. Um, you know, I, I'm a Guardian reader naturally, so that's not a problem for me. I, I think I find it. Di- I do find it difficult writing for publications I'm not a natural reader of, um, and I think that's often the trick when it comes to being a freelance journalist to find the publications that you would naturally pick up anyway. You know, you start writing for other people and just start kind of trying to second guess what you're meant to be doing. Um, with, the, with The Guardian it's interesting Because I write very much In a similar way to the way I conduct my research You know I, I, With those articles What I will do I mean I'll give you an example I got um, uh, a message from one of my editors um, Just before Christmas Joe Cocker had died um, Could I do a story about his Australian connection Now I'm not necessarily A natural Joe Cocker fan um, but, you know, I'm not going to turn down some work, and it seemed like an interesting story. And so the first thing I do is you go online, um, you chase up every single lead you can following that story. So you've got about 30 different windows open, and then you kind of start making notes from each of those windows, and then you kind of start closing some of your windows, and then you narrow it down a little bit more, and then you narrow it down, then you try to find maybe a couple of sources that can give you some kind of unique kind of perspective or quote that you wouldn't get from anywhere else else, and then you kind of work that in. You know, if you're reviewing stuff, as opposed to doing an article or feature on something, if you're reviewing stuff, you try not to look at anything else at all. You try to just go with whatever thoughts in your head. You know, you're working on a computer, the rest stands for to editing. Um, you know, I'm a good editor. I always have been a good editor. Um, so you just kind of follow whatever space your head is in at that point in time, and you kind of... Um, If it's not working, you still try to go with it um, and maybe you can come back. It depends. I work better on a deadline. You know, if I'm given two hours to do something, I can do it. Give me me that job, I can do it. We used to have a competition at the Melody Maker to see who could write the fastest album reviews. I was able to turn four rounds in an hour, including listening to the albums. And they'd be, you know, just as serviceable as anybody else's.
0: Sounds like you must be a fast typer as well, Jerry. Uh, So what's your next choice for us?
1: So my next choice is Edwin Hawkins' singer's Oh Happy Day. And this is actually one that I've gone on record as saying it's the best performance ever recorded to vinyl. Um, Not necessarily the best song, but the best performance. It's just... I love gospel music up to the point where it became kind of, you know, overtly kind of homogenised or or codified or whatever. You know, when... The whole point of me of gospel singing and and the reason why Whitney Houston is an awful singer and Nina Simone is a great singer is because it's not about hitting the notes. It's about trying to hit the notes. It's about the passion you put into it it's about the energy um i'm I'm, you know i don't believe in a god myself but i love the fact that other people do um and and music um oh happy day is a song i picked a while back because you've got to choose a song for your funeral if you're getting older it's a song i chose because it's completely inappropriate one of my favorite ever you know, absolute favourite memories of Plan B magazine was being invited out to Istanbul to DJ. I mean, that in itself is pretty incredible. And I DJed in front of this completely sold-out, packed house of about four, or 500 people. How the hell? I don't know. Um, and putting this song on and the place going absolutely berserk with myself leading them in the dancing, it's just, uh, you know, it's just one of those kind of... You don't need E or anything, you know? I I had... I haven't spoken to Alan McGee for, what, 30 years? I don't know, a long time, since we fell out in 85. Um, he's not the type to go... but He he falls out with people, I fall out with people, so when we both do it, it's like, it's not going to happen. Um, we did have a bit of a run-in a few years ago on Twitter when um, I commented on something that Sean from Down and Sound... I, was, I think I was defending Sean from Down and Sound from McGee, having a go at him, and... Um, I said, the difference between Alan McGee and myself is that um, he thinks people still care about what he writes. He was doing a garden column at time, and I said, I know people don't care about what I write. And he wrote back and said, no, Jerry, the difference between you and me is £30 million, which I thought was pretty good. So I wrote back, mm. no, Alan, the difference between you and me is that I don't need to take drugs to enjoy music.
0: That was Oh Happy Day, uh, and you mentioned um, your wife uh, Charlotte, uh, Joe. How do you uh, share musical tastes, and uh, w- uh, where did you meet?
1: We met in a nightclub in Brighton. Well, roughly, I mean, we kind of Brighton's not that big a place. We're sort of the same circles, and we kind of knew each other. But the first time I noticed her, she was um, smiling at me in a nightclub in Brighton, and she just had a beautiful smile, and I was like, she can't be looking at me. She's way too beautiful. Um, I'm not sure she was actually. Were you looking at me at that point? No, she says no. <laughs> um, and um, yeah. yeah, so yeah. I mean, we you know. I mean, we were part of the same scene really, which kind of centered roughly around a few different nightclubs: the Free butt, um the Basement, mm-hmm. um, uh, a handful of others. You know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of shared musical yeah. to a degree. I've got way better taste. What's your final choice? Then? So the final choice is a full track. Now, the full track I've chosen, I'm only 90% certain of the title because I wasn't able to triple-check it just before you called, is Hotel Blodiel from um, Blodell from uh, Perverted by Language and it's got Brick Smith singing on it um, which is perverse like the um fall uh yes i have pretty much i i have a lot of fall albums i don't think of myself as a fall fan i mean you know i've got 30 or 40 fall albums but i really don't think of myself as a fall fan because there are fall obsessives out there and i'm not a fall obsessive i just happen to have 30 or 40 albums and i happen to like pretty much most of them certainly the ones i've heard which is probably about 20 of them um, 25 of them um, but I'm not an obsessive you know, I don't really, I don't read interviews I don't, you know, I don't read books I don't, you know, whatever I've only ever seen The Fall a few times actually a handful of times I had a great moment, uh, having said that I had a great moment in Melody Maker in about 91, 92 we used to hold these um, in-house debates where we'd invite kind of, you know pop stars and personalities and industry people to come and talk about the pressing subject of the day and, um we had one about I can't even remember what it's about. It's about independent music or something. There was something about independent music, you know. And um, we'd invited a whole bunch of people to turn up and they all turned up, which was lovely. And we had a couple of unexpected guests show up, which were Marky e. Smith and Peter Hook. And they came into the room, and I was chairing the debate, and they stood either side of me, each with a hand on my shoulder, like they were kind of passing on the baton. It was, it was, it was quite surprising. Um, I didn't know either of them. Um, still don't. Um, it, was, it was lovely. I wish somebody had got a photo. Maybe some did get a photo, but I've never seen that. Um, but, yeah, um, uh, you know, the fall. I mean, uh, they are my own can, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah um you know i i bought the f- the first album i ever bought was live at the witch trials and i st- it's still you know it's bound to be it's, i still think it's about the best album ever made um uh, <coughs> yeah and and all the uh, all the uh, you know everything up to about nineteen i don't know ninety or possibly after that and then some of the stuff after that and then some of the stuff from the 2000s and you know the last couple have been pretty good as well um but no i'm not a fan no way
0: <laughs> well since you're not a fan uh, we'll just have to enjoy it uh, in spite of you there it's 19th century conflicts sparking off I repeat these southern spectres with disease rhythm dusty organic and psychic Think you would cope uh in the in the desert then jerry if desert. you were cast out there alone you've got your eight records uh but uh you know do you, do <laughs> you, you find a <laughs> yes the fish
1: shade oh well it'd be like living in brisbane then
0: <laughs> so you're fairly adept to it
1: um, um no yes and no i mean it depends whether it's hot all the time and also it's it's not so much the heat during the day it's the cold at night I'm oh. sure you could uh, keep dancing to keep warm, couldn't you? Um, well, we're very generous <laughs> in the desert, but <laughs> I don't think I need to keep
0: dancing. <laughs> we're very generous here. We, uh, we give you the uh, Tiger Who Came to Tea and the complete Red Dwarf box set, but you're allowed one extra luxury item. Uh, what would it be, Joe?
1: Well, I suppose it, it depends whether I was going to be kind of um, constructive with my time and whether I was going to get off this desert at any point in time. If I thought I was going to be getting off the desert at any point in time, I suppose the most sensible thing to do would be to take some kind of writing device so I could write. As long as I thought someone was reading it, going to read it at the other end.
0: I'm sure we'd find it. I'm sure we'd
1: pick up as... So maybe just a humble pencil and, uh, well, no, I mean, I prefer, you know, a computer, you know just you know whatever (laughs)
0: we'll throw in a pencil sharpener if we give you the pencil then shall we Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you Jerry thank you for letting us hear your desert isolation discs Uh, check out collapseboard.com where Jerry's writings can be found and uh, thank you for joining us as ever any resemblance to any other podcasts uh, alive or dead is purely coincidental and we hope that you can join us again next time on desert isolation discs